Sometimes the most incredible things happen in the most unlikely of places or through the most unlikely of people. For instance, in 1809, if you were around back then, the person who likely would have caught your attention was that little French dictator, Napoleon Bonaparte. He was sweeping across the world stage, bringing emperors to their knees, conquering empires. He seemed to be the most important person around. I mean, who could be more important, who could be more noteworthy than Napoleon? At the same time, in 1809, there was a teenage boy who went to his father's library and picked a book off the shelf, went out to the barn, and began to read. There was one phrase in the book that just grabbed this boy's attention, and he read it over and over again and continued just to contemplate what it meant. The phrase was, the finished work of Christ. Well, right then and there, this boy, he began a relationship with Jesus. And years later, Hudson Taylor started the China Inland Mission. And he was able to reach millions, literally millions of people for Christ. And so we look back now and we see who really had the bigger impact, Napoleon or Hudson Taylor. As we begin this series, Meant for Good, we'll see how God reached into the most unlikely of families, how he chose the most unlikely of people. Uh, This was a family full of dysfunction, a family full of pain and misery and heartbreak. And out of that family, he chose Joseph. And all of that evil, well, God intended it, he meant it for good. So, let's go ahead and get started. As we study through the life of Joseph, beginning in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph, he had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, the Joseph narratives, they begin with this most unimpressive genealogy. In fact, it is the most unimpressive genealogy in all of the scriptures. Did did you catch it? It goes pretty quick. It simply says, Jacob lived in Canaan. And here are the generations of Jacob. He had a teenage son named Joseph. He was 17. That's basically the genealogy. And... 
you look at that, this is the whole genealogy, it's so unimpressive. And we know that Jacob, also called Israel, that he had other sons, they're going to be very influential in the Joseph story. But Joseph is the only one listed. Why? Because it's set in contrast to Genesis chapter 36. In Genesis chapter 36, you get the genealogy of Esau, Jacob's brother. And Esau's genealogy is an impressive genealogy. I mean, it is a list of 27 chiefs and 8 kings. These are men of influence, men of nobility, men of impact. I mean, you read through a genealogy like that and you take note. And then one chapter later, here's Jacob's genealogy. He had a teenage dreamer for a son. I mean, that, that, that's it. There's not much to write about over here. I mean, if the world is taking note, they're looking at Esau. Jacob's genealogy, well, there's not a whole lot to write home about. See, understand this. What the world considers noteworthy is often minimal importance. What, what the world likes to give their attention to is often not really all that important. See, the world would stop and consider Esau's genealogy. And it would think, wow, here's nobility, there's power, there's influence here. They would look at Jacob's genealogy and say, I don't know that there's a whole lot to focus on over here. This can be discarded. But God, he's going to give one chapter letting you know, okay, here's what happened with Esau's line. And then he will spend chapter after chapter after chapter recording the life in detail of what happened to that teenage dreamer, Joseph. Why? Because Joseph had a rock-solid faith in God. And understand this, Joseph never saw God. Joseph never actually had a conversation with God the way that God talked with Abraham, Isaac, and his father Jacob. That didn't happen with Joseph. This was a God that Joseph did not see, a God that Joseph did not just verbally communicate with as if God was right there in front of him. Yet Joseph trusts God, and Joseph helps us to trust God as well as we run through his life these next several weeks. So, we learn right away that Joseph is not that impressive of a character when compared to Esau. But Joseph has the heart of his father. He is the favored son. And because Joseph uh, was born when Jacob was old, Jacob really loved Joseph. But it wasn't simply the fact that Jacob was old that he loved Joseph more. See, you, you have to understand this twisted family history of Jacob. I mean, it is all kinds of messed up. Jacob, he had two wives. They were sisters, Leah and Rachel. But he loved Rachel more. Rachel was the apple of his eye. He was the one that he was really affectionate towards, the one that he really wanted. And so this created quite a competition because of Jacob's morality and marrying two wives and going against God's standard for marriage and what a healthy family would look like. I mean, this set up quite a childbearing competition. So Leah had six sons and one daughter. Rachel, meanwhile, she's unable to get pregnant. She can't bear Jacob any children. But she takes matters into her own hands. She has her maid uh, Bilpah give birth to two sons for Jacob. Not to be outdone, Leah has her maid Zilpah bear Jacob two sons. And then finally, after years of infertility, at long last, Jacob's favorite, Rachel, bears a son and names him 
Joseph. And you add all this up. You have one man. You have four women. You have 11 sons. You have one daughter. But this was not a picture of some big, happy family. This was not a picture of marital bliss. Instead, by violating God's commandment, by violating this uh, command of what a good family ought to look like, one man and one woman, Jacob, he had sown a family that was rife with jealousy, with strife, with anger, with lust, with deceit, with competition, with secrecy. It was a family with storm clouds brewing. And this family, it began in Haran. And so he gives Joseph this coat of many colors. And we think of it as some really cool jacket, some really cool coat, oh, this is special. But it's much more than that. You see, at that time, in those days, people of nobility, they would wear these coats that were expensively dyed with all these bright colors to show that they were someone of significance. They were someone of importance. This, uh, this type of a tunic, it would have reached all the way to Joseph's wrists and all the way down to his ankles. This was a robe of nobility. But the, the tunic was more than just an expensive gift, a robe of nobility. It also signified and symbolized authority and a favored position within the family. See, basically it meant you didn't have to work that Joseph was now, he's able to order his brothers around and tell them what they ought to do. He basically becomes their supervisor. Here he is the youngest and he's telling all of his older brothers, this is what you gotta do and he's reporting back to his father, this is how they're doing. You know, Jacob did not set Joseph up for success within the family. If you want to create a family of dysfunction, real easy, all you got to do is pick a favorite child and you will sow seeds of opposition, <laughs> seeds of hate, and that's what happens. So to make matters worse, Joseph comes back and the report that he brings back to his father, it's a bad report. You see that in verse 2. He brings back this unfavorable report about his brothers and what they're doing in the field as they're out working. And, you know, we, we see that and some people want to say, well, Joseph was kind of being a tattletale here, you know, he's telling on his brothers and, you know, why would he do that? As you study through the life of Joseph, one of the things that you'll learn is
is Joseph had a conscience that's easily pricked by immorality. And so he probably feels this duty to his brothers and to his father to go back and to protect the family name so it's not dragged through the mud. And so he returns home and he tells his dad. And Jacob, well, Jacob has the classic Jacob response. It's silence. He, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't confront his sons. He doesn't, he doesn't find out what, you know, what they were doing. He doesn't try to correct their behavior. It's just silence. You know, he's been through so much. By this point, he's just numb to things, and he just lets it continue. You know, sometimes it's easy to think that if I ignore it, this problem will go away. If I don't confront it, everything will just kind of take care of itself. And so it can be easier to excuse problems than to confront problems. It can be easier to remain silent than to speak up. But understand this, passivity in the home, silence in response to sin, it will create a dysfunctional family every single time. There will be marital tension, children will begin to act out, all kinds of different behaviors, trying to earn some type of attention from their parents. And by the way, right now in our culture, we have a crisis of passive dads in our culture. There was a study done that said the average father spent less than 15 meaningful seconds with their children each day. Less than 15 seconds. You understand, it's time to set down the iPhone. It's time to set down the golf clubs. It's time to focus and engage our kids. J Jacob's immorality and his passivity, it created a house full of storm clouds, a house full of opposition, of tension, of bitterness, of hatred. Verse 4 says the brothers hated Joseph and they couldn't even speak peacefully towards him. Any time they began to speak to Joseph, just their, their blood would boil, hate would spew out. They couldn't even be kind to this younger brother of theirs because of the seeds that their father had sown. So it probably doesn't help when Joseph comes home one day and tells, the, tells his brothers, hey, I've had this dream, two dreams. In fact, one day y'all are going to be serving me. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to be the leader of this Israelite nation. Everyone's going to bow down to me. How exciting, isn't it? Well, it's not so exciting for them. I mean, this, this is the brother they hate. They're, they're looking at him, and he already has everything. He has the love of the father, the attention of the father that they've never had. He has a, this special coat that allows him all these, all, his, all these privileges. He doesn't have to work so hard. He just gets to go and report. He has all these special privileges. And now this younger brother of ours, he's also going to be king. He's also going to be ruler. Now, this is awful news. The, the brothers, they become jealous. And understand this. Jealousy is a symptom of bitterness toward God. If you look at what someone else has, and then you say, oh, I don't have that. I really wish I had that. Instead of looking at some, what, what someone else has and just being able to rejoice with them, well, it's a sign of, of bitterness against God. Because what you're saying, in fact, is, God, why didn't you deal with me the way you dealt with them? How, how come you were better to them than you were to me? How come I don't have this and you begin to focus on yourself and what you don't have and then you begin to question God why did you not work this way with me and that's why jealousy is so bad because it creates opposition with others and it creates bitterness toward God 
And this is the storm going on in Jacob's house. I mean, it's quite a storm. It's a storm of opposition. It's a storm of bitterness. It's a storm of hatred. It's a, it's a storm of strife and jealousy. And the brothers, well, they're going to go back to the field and they're going to work. They're back working in the field. And then Jacob sends Joseph out to just watch over and check up on them again. He says, Jacob, Joseph, go out. Let me know how they're doing. Come back. Report to me. And then the real storm hits. I want you to see it. We'll pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37, verses 18 through 36. It says, The brothers saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might, that we, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Now, I, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You see how bad the opposition had become? The, the brothers, they're conspiring together. They want to kill Joseph. Reuben steps in and says, no, we can't kill him. Let's just throw him into this empty well over here, this, this pit. If Reuben had not have stepped in, they would have killed him right then and there. Instead, they do. They throw him down this empty well. And you can imagine this frightful scene, can't you? I mean, here's Joseph and the brothers, they're all older and they're grabbed. It's all right, let's throw him down this well, then this pit right here. Oh, wait, wait, wait. First, we got to rip this coat off. Oh, man, that coat makes my blood boil. It represents everything that we hate about Joseph. It represents that he's loved, that he's appreciated, that he has this special position in the family. We don't have any of that. This coat boils our blood. We got to get that off of him right now. 
And so they take the coat off. They throw Joseph down the well. Another passage of scripture tells us that when Joseph was down in that empty well, that he was pleading with his brothers. That he was screaming. I mean, they can hear Joseph's screams just begging. I mean, can't you imagine Judah, Dan, Levi, Nathalie, one of you, one of my brothers, will you please rescue me? Will you please save me? Can't you hear me? I need your help. Come, get me out of here. And what do the brothers do? They sit down and eat. I mean, don't miss the callousness of this scene. They're they're within earshot of Joseph's screams. They hear this young boy pleading for help, this 17-year-old teenager pleading for help. And they sit down for a meal. They sit down ignoring his pleas, ignoring his screams, and they eat. And just when you think the storm can't get any worse, they see the Ishmaelites approaching. And they think to themselves, all right, why don't we just sell him? Judah, the oldest, he speaks up. Let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And that's what they do. For measly 20 shekels of silver, they, they sell their brother into slavery. Joseph, he repped the whirlwind as well. 
He went from a favored son to a faceless slave, sold like a piece of cattle to the highest bidder. Here he was, just a 17-year-old boy, sold off to this alien country in Egypt. It was, a, it was a country with a different language and different customs. You understand the storm clouds that had been brewing over this family for so many years, well now they were unleashed with full force. And it was awful, it was terrible. But understand this, every family faces adversity. Every family faces problems. That There's no place in this fallen world where you can run to and just escape the trials of life. And so you have a choice to make. You can either lead like Jacob to a place where everyone runs to their own corners where you hold these deep, dark family secrets and you never let it out. You don't have people around you who love you and will hurt with you just the way you hurt. Or you can build a strong family. A family where you talk about things, where you love one another, where the trials of life actually make you stronger. They actually make you better. Because your joy is not robbed in the midst of the pain. You're able to sing in the storm. You're able to praise through the tears. Now, it's been awful. I mean, the pain that Joseph has endured to this point has been terrible. But it's about to get even worse. You don't want to miss next week. Heavenly Father... We thank you that in the midst of the storm, that we can still praise, we can still sing. God, Joseph was able to do that. Help us to trust the way Joseph trusted, because we know you and we believe in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.